and Mr. Hayden. Bible in front of you, that's on page 1014, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 23. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincerely brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we just praise you and thank you for your word. Your word calls us to be holy. And God, we just pray that as your messenger, Brother Hayden, comes today and shares with us, Lord, that we might just, uh, you might just speak to our hearts. Your Holy Spirit might do a work that just sends a message clearly to us. And Father, we do praise you and thank you and ask that you bless this time. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to begin this morning just by saying what a joy it is to be here with you again. Uh, it has been such a pleasure over these past few years to begin to get to know some of you and to see what God is doing in and through this body. And what a joy this morning to be able to worship together with you and recognize the bond that we have in Jesus. Uh, what a glorious set of truths that we have heard and sung about and affirmed this morning. And uh, so I, we count that a, a great privilege uh, to be with you. Um, I want to also begin by just expressing my appreciation for your prayers uh, for our family. Uh, I know I've had several of you that have communicated with me about uh, your prayers for Rinda especially and her health needs. She would love to have been here with us, and uh, unfortunately, um, for, unfortunately and fortunately, her surgery is just around the corner, uh, her first surgery. And so we're going to be heading out to New York on Wednesday 
and we're very grateful that uh, after about 15 months being in bed, uh, we finally have uh, this potential to relieve part of her ongoing challenges. And so we would appreciate your prayer as we head out to New York. Uh, things are a little uh, tempestuous in that state right now, and we're just seeking the Lord's grace. We're hoping to be um, vehicles of the gospel, of the good news to the people we encounter. And God gives us that every time we travel uh, for this set of problems that Brenda and our family endures. And that's really the grace of God. Pastor Andrew alluded to it here this morning. These trials that we face are also those places where God gives us his grace. And we'll be thinking about that this morning. So I just want to express that appreciation uh, for your prayers on her behalf. We will uh, look forward to the next opportunity. She has to be here among you and to uh, share some of that. And you can go ahead and put the slides up there. Uh, what I'm going to do this morning is just begin by giving you a brief introduction, a little taste of some of what God is doing uh, through this Ministry Horizon Education Network. Uh, it has been such a blessing. It's so exciting to be able to see God at work in various cultures around the world. And uh, this is just going to be a little glimpse. I hope that it might awaken uh, an opportunity for further conversation with some of you if you're interested to know a little bit more about this uh, ministry that our family participates in. So what I'd like to do, uh, just in, in brief, would be to share with you a little of what Horizon is all about by using the name, uh, the name that we have landed on, Horizon Education Network. Let's see if I'm pushing the right buttons here. Turn it off and on again. I might need help advancing. So I'm going to begin by talking backwards from our name, talking about what it means for Horizon in terms of our networking. I'll go ahead and advance the next slide. One of the unique things that we have faced as an organization is something that lots of businesses and you faced as well, and that's this time of the pandemic. And uh, our work is uh, working and using technologies to extend opportunities for ministry training. Um, and so here in this pandemic, all of a sudden, tables were turned upside down and we had to think, how do we work now? We used to travel and now we can't travel. How do we do this? And yet what we saw was the providence of God in this in ways we couldn't have imagined. And that's what I'd like to share a little bit with you. Go ahead, advance to the next slide. During the pandemic, we actually added 17 new partners, uh, partners who were desperate Seminaries who had been involved in training men and women to serve in local churches and various roles within the body and who found themselves at a dead end. How do we move forward? And so Horizon became that vehicle to help them to extend training in new ways, to think about how they can provide opportunities even with the challenge of the pandemic. And so added 17 partners for a total of 44 now that God has placed on our, um, on our steps. And what's exciting about these partnerships is that uh, even though they are located in about 23 countries around the globe, they're actually reaching men and women, students, from 95 countries. And that's one of the unique capabilities in the world in which we live, of bringing training to people rather than taking people from where they live to a training center. This is the opportunity to think about that in a new way. One of the unique differences in our world today because of technology is the boundaries of countries really have shifted now to boundaries of language. Go ahead. 
Uh, one of the examples I would give you, we work with a partner who has been serving in Venezuela. Um, because of the political situation there, he and his family was forced to leave, barely making it out of the country without uh, having some other uh, problems, even imprisonment. And yet uh, he came to us and was able to continue that ministry even living now outside of Venezuela. And he partners with uh, the man on the right, Castagio, who he led to the Lord and discipled. And they began to put out uh, this idea that, hey, we have training available in the Spanish language. And he made the mistake of advertising because he couldn't answer the thousands of responses from around the globe of Spanish men and women who wanted training in the Bible, who wanted to understand how to serve in their context. And so now in, in dozens of countries, they are serving and helping prepare, um, especially pastors for ministry in Spanish-speaking places. And it would amaze you, the countries in which Spanish speakers live, just like English speakers. A tremendous opportunity. We believe that we cannot do what we need to do alone, but that we need to partner with others and together work for the cause of the kingdom. And here are just some of the partnerships that God has brought our way that has allowed us uh, to work in, in new, new ways, that has allowed us to extend what we do and to recognize God at work in different places. Go ahead. The second area is in our name is education. And what we do is to think about meeting educational needs. We do that really with three-fold strategy. And we work with partners in these three areas. Curriculum development, uh, how do we help shape it in ways that answer questions that are needed in particular places around the globe. Some problems are unique to unique places. Well, and we kind of use this analogy of air travel, uh, even though maybe most of us aren't traveling via air travel right now, it's a great way to think about it. The work we do in curriculum development is like building planes, planes that are unique to unique contexts. But we also need to train pilots into how to use these new tools in effective ways that results in transformation and preparation for ministry. We'll go back one, I'm sorry, slide. And finally, administrative development is like that infrastructure. So we work with administrators, and just like when you fly, you need baggage handling, and you need a, a tower that, and a, air, you know, a, a tarmac to land. There's a lot of infrastructure that can be helpful in helping men and women in preparing for ministry. And so we work in the, all three of those spheres, and uh, we kind of think in terms of strategic services that help partners do what they do and become more sustainable. One of the challenges in ministry training worldwide has been a dependence on the West and Western money. And so part of our goal is to help them develop capacity to be self-sustaining and being able to do that locally. And we do that through working with administration, training managers, teachers, some of those core courses I mentioned, curriculum design, course development. And we, learn, we use this learning management system called Moodle, just point of curiosity. How many of you have heard of Moodle? So just a few of you. And basically, it's a set of tools that allows you to, whether in the classroom or online, to help somebody in an educational way with their learning and providing tools and resources and learning activities. One of the big priorities of Horizon is reconnecting theological education in the church. This is a major problem, even here in the US. Uh, theological training has become separated from the ministry of the local church at times. And we believe that God has promised to build his church, not necessarily to build his seminaries, right? And yet God uses seminaries, and so our goal has been to help reconnect seminaries to those local churches in ways that are meaningful, 
that are very helpful and useful. And just three examples um, of some of our partners in Southeast Asia. There's a partner that we work with that has created a program in the spirit of this desire to partner with churches called Bible for All. And they've made that available to not only pastors, but congregations who want to study and learn about the Bible. And that has actually helped them connect to the local context, which are quite varied in India, uh, even in terms of uh, people groups and languages. Uh, it's really incredible. In Ukraine, what we have seen is one partner school that opened its doors for another struggling partner school um, that was in Ukraine. Now, it's kind of a novel idea. Can you imagine one seminary or Bible college in the U.S. seeing another Bible college in the U.S. struggling and opening its doors to invite their faculty and, and their school to happen on their campus. Well, that's exactly what happened here. Two partnering together. The strength of one was more academic. The strength of the other was working with local churches. And together, they're partnering to connect those dots. Finally, in Ireland, we work with a partner that has seen the unique opportunity for them to be engaging local churches. And they have partnered churches. I think they have about five now where they're uh, turning curriculum over to the churches and allowing them to run them and about 250 people in those programs. So exciting to see God at work reconnecting the work of seminaries to local churches. Okay. So finally, new, new opportunities, and I'll just be brief on some of these. Uh, they're exciting for me to think about what God might be doing. One example here, uh, go ahead and advance, is uh, something called a Moodle box. Now, I'm going to ask another question. I expect maybe only a few have heard of what's called a raspberry pie. Well, it depends, right? What kind of raspberry pie am I talking about? Um, there's a technology that's called a raspberry pie. And uh, what it allows you to do is to create resources that aren't necessarily connected to the Internet, but in which people can come with their devices and access those resources. Now, this is especially helpful in places where there's security risk. So imagine in China, and you have a, a group of resources that you want to pass along. You can't put it on the Internet because you know you'll be tracked and they'll find you in your ministry. So you put your devices on this Raspberry Pi. You go to a park, you put it in a backpack, and you have it on, and it has this kind of network capacity, and people, you know, ride their bikes and walk through the park, and they get the resources, and they go home. Gives new meaning to Raspberry Pi in the park, doesn't it? But, you know, and it's just incredible what God is enabling. We're using this uh, in ministry with seminaries in Cuba. We have partners in Southeast Asia who are also interested in this particular device, and sometimes it's a matter of internet. They just don't have it, so this provides a training resource. Go ahead. Uh, I know you can't see this uh, very well. This is uh, just a page off of one of our training courses in our Moodle environment. Uh, this course is helping seminary and church leaders learn how to teach in an online context. The three little pictures that you can barely see here at the bottom, uh, they represent people that I had the privilege of training through this program. And now they are using it. And what you can't see, unless you have very good vision, uh, up in the top right here, is that they're actually uh, training happening in three languages simultaneously. This is in the region of the Middle East and North Africa. So this training is happening with seminaries in a very difficult place. And there are conversations happening in English, Arabic, and French, depending on the language of the participant. 
and we're all doing it in the same space together, and it's amazing. You go, they, we have conversations designed for each language group, but people are so excited about what's going on, they're using other kind of translation tools, and they're working across languages together in this unique process. Who could have imagined, right, uh, the opportunities that God's providing? Go ahead. This is a partner uh, school that we work with, another one in Ukraine, uh, that has a vision for reaching the stands uh, in very difficult uh, situations. Sometimes when their faculty go into these places, they don't know if they're going to come back. And that's the commitment that this school has. And when we arrived, this is one of our, my colleagues that I work with. Um, they invited him to put on this uh, special robe and they wanted to take a picture to, so that we would take it home to recognize that Horizon, they, they are seeing themselves in partnership with us as an extension of Horizon's ministry. Well, why I wanted to show you this picture is as you think about your missionaries that you serve and you support and you pray for, you in the very same way are extensions of their ministry and they are extensions of yours. And that is a unique um, vision when I see this picture. I recognize that connection that we share together. And what you do is vital to that ministry in your prayers for them. Go ahead. So as you think about our team, um, we just are in your backyard up in Grand Rapids. We invite you at some point to see the offices um, if you're ever in the neighborhood or if you'd like to talk further. But appreciate your prayers. We're a small team. We rely very much on those on the ground to be the ones uh, enacting uh, these unique opportunities. And as we think about it, I'm, I'm going to share some, future, or some additional examples in the message about Horizons Ministry as we uh, turn to our, our subject this morning. So um, thank you very much. Uh, we, I appreciate this uh, brief introduction to Horizon Education Network. And again, look forward to chatting with you further. So in transitioning to our text, let me open with a word of prayer and just invite the Lord to be at work in and through this um, unique opportunity this morning. Father, we pause and we are grateful. Um, our hearts uh, were overwhelmed even this morning as we were singing and raising the question, are you worthy? And Father, we know you are worthy. We know that our Lord Jesus is worthy. And we echoed as a group, as a congregation, as a part of your body, you are. You are worthy. So Father, in this moment, I pray you would open our hearts to your spirit's work. Pray that we would exalt Jesus, that we would see him as having the highest value, but that it would mean more than that, that it would move from our heart into our hands and feet as we seek to serve you in the daily life that you bring to us. And we ask that that would be our openness this morning. I pray that you would use the feebleness of uh, this time together in your word to do a powerful work in, in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'd invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to First Peter. Uh, we read this morning. I'd actually like to begin this morning by sharing a fond memory that I have. Um, as a young teenager, I had the opportunity to go to Israel on a tour. My father led tours, and so I was a teenager. Uh, it was quite amazing. And one of the memories that stands out to me to this day is um, an experience that happened with my grandfather, who was also on the trip. 
Now, for those of you who don't know much about that culture, one of the things that um, I was unaware of was how that goods would be purchased by bartering. So there's a price given, and you offer a counterprice, and then you have this ongoing discussion, dialogue, argument, and you either buy it or you don't, right? That was very unique to me. Uh, I've not, I had not seen that before. And so in this particular instance, there was a, a young boy who, was, who had latched on to my grandfather. And he was telling him, I have this beautiful olive uh, wood figurine, and I'd like you to buy it. It's only $20. It's a great deal. Well, my grandfather, he, he just loved the, the sport of bartering. Okay? I, I'm not like that. I was a little more timid. And, but for him, this was a game. So he just said right off the bat, I'll give you 10. Well, the boy knew that was coming and acted offended and said, that's way too, you know, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't give it for that. Let's do 15. Well, then my grandfather didn't play by the rules. He offered nine. And the little boy cocked his head thinking, wait a minute, this isn't how the game works. And he kind of protested and offered less. Okay, I'll give it to you for 12. And then my grandfather said eight. And this continued. And so there's a group of us, we're walking away from one of these biblical sites, right, where you're supposed to be having spiritual thoughts. And my grandfather and this little boy are playing this game, right? And we come to the bus. And by the time we get to the bus, my grandfather is at $3 and the boy's at 10, you know. And, and so, you know, here they are. And my grandfather finally gets on the bus. He lowers the window, leans out the window, and he's holding $1 bill. And he's saying, I'll give you a dollar. And so the bus starts to pull away. The little boy reached up, took the dollar, put the figurine in his hand, and my grandfather sat down. By that time, the entire bus knew what was going on. Everybody applauded and cheered, you know, and my grandfather had this smug smile on his face. Sat down, you know, and he looked at his figurine. First thing he noticed, it wasn't olive wood. It was with uh, eucalyptus. Our tour guide informed us that we should think of it as eucalyptus because it's not worth very much, okay? So... <laughs> It was that. And then he noticed it had been broken in multiple pieces and, and, and glued back together. Probably not worth the dollar. And yet, I, for our family, that story was worth every penny of that dollar because it's a, a great memory of our grandfather and his personality and that unique story. Now, I raise it to, to raise the question, how do we determine the value of something? How do we determine, determine what the worth of something is? I encountered some crazy purchases or some in, in recent years. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of some of these. For example, I don't know how much you would pay for a glass of water that was only half full because someone else had drank the rest of the water in, in, in the glass. But this particular glass of water sold for $455. I guess it had been Elvis who was drinking the water, which is why the person paid $455. But the same is true, right? I, there's a, a facial tissue that was purchased after a Tonight Show episode for like $5,300 because of the, a particular star that had used it. Hard for me to imagine. A company that paid a lady $10,000 to tattoo the advertisement of their company on her face. Is that worth it? Perhaps one of the most strange things for me is something called Mona, it stands for the Museum of Non-Visible Art. Apparently, you can go to the museum, and there is 
non-visible art there. I don't know where you find it, but it's there. And what's surprising is that you, can, you can also purchase this non-visible art that exists in the mind of the artist. There's a piece called Fresh Air that sold for $10,000. Hard to imagine, isn't it? And this morning, we're thinking about the supreme value, the supreme worth of Jesus Christ. And I know if I were to ask the question, do you believe that Jesus is worthy of supreme value? We, we sang it this morning. You would say with a, a resounding yes, right? And even as Pastor read from Colossians this morning, and as we thought about some of these passages, the Bible is filled with this teaching that Jesus is of supreme worth and value. But the question I'd like for us to consider is another question that the New Testament raises, and that is what, is your, what are you willing to give for that supreme value? What's it worth to you? I mean, practically, not just up here uh, today. And, and, you know, as we think about the New Testament, we think about stories like the, the man who discovers a treasure in a field, and he goes and he sells everything he has to buy the field to get the treasure. And Jesus uses that to describe the response to the supreme value of himself and of the gospel, right? The good news that we can receive. We hear Paul in Philippians say, I count everything, all things as loss, as rubbish, to gain Christ. Now, let me hasten to say, as Pastor even mentioned uh, in his prayer, the good news is that the gospel is free. There's nothing that I have that I could give for it. So even if I did sell everything I have, it wouldn't merit me getting salvation, redemption, coming to know Jesus. But once that free gift has been offered, the question is, what am I willing to give in response And that's a very, perhaps, theoretical question. And what I would like us to do this morning is to look at 1 Peter. I believe 1 Peter gives us a very practical vision for what it means to give myself to God's desire for my life. What does it mean to actually practically live out the value that I believe Jesus is worth everything? So I'd invite you to turn there, and we're going to use the passage we read this morning as kind of a springboard and kind of think across the letter about some of Peter's practical ideas about what it means to invest our lives fully. And I'd, I'd like to pick up, first of all, just by reading again, 1 Peter 1, verse 13. This is the first time Peter uses the word therefore, drawing our attention to some important point. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter's talking to all of us about putting our hope fully. It's an interesting word, actually. It's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. It really means to the utter end. The best illustration I can have is kind of goes against our cultural idea, right? You don't put all your eggs in one basket. Peter's saying, put all your eggs in one basket. Your whole orientation, your hope in life, 
should be in this one thing. And that's the question for us this morning. What does it look like to put all of my eggs in that basket? Well, the first thing we see in Peter's letter here, in this short letter, is that he says we need to understand and we need to think right about our identity in Christ. We live in a culture where there's a significant identity crisis. And you don't have to go far before you see people who are struggling to figure out who they are, why they're here. Peter begins and says, listen, if you want to live this way practically, to be like that man who bought the field, to be like Paul who counts everything as loss except gaining Christ, knowing him, you need to think right. In fact, in these very words, the first phrase here, therefore preparing your minds for action, it literally is girding up the loins of your mind. And again, we're kind of separated from the culture, so we are here today dressed the way we are, and if we could imagine wearing long robes that would often get in the way when you're doing something, like working in the field, or doing battle, or running, or and various things. And so you'd have to tuck your robe into your belt to be able to work in the field, or to run, or to do battle. And this is the picture of the preparation we need to make with our mind. We need to pause. We need to recognize that something is unique, and it needs to shape the way we look at the world. It needs to color how we see things. And so here, Peter begins by talking about uh, this incredible picture of what, who we are as believers in Jesus. And if I could go back to that illustration of the non-visible art, <laughs> what I'm asking, I guess, of all of us this morning is, are you willing to invest yourself in this picture that Peter is painting in his letter? How much are you willing to spend to buy this vision of what Peter describes for us is our reality in Christ. All through the letter, he focuses his attention on a future. And we sang about that this morning. And it's this future that allows me to live in the present in a way that is very unique. Um, in his letter, he speaks about the end and about last times. He speaks about the glory of God that is coming. He, and he, he speaks about God's anticipation for how our lives should be different in the here and now. He talks about a living hope. It's not just a future hope. It's a hope that, as Pastor even mentioned, affects the here and now. It's anchored in the past because of what Jesus has done through his uh, work on the cross. It's looking toward the future in the direction that we're heading, but it's meant for today. So when does eternal life begin? right now, for those who know Jesus. We read about it this morning, right? You're born again, not by perishable seed, but by the word of God, which is imperishable. It, it, it's, you, it can't be corrupted. It doesn't die. And so the moment that seed is planted in a heart, eternal life begins. What a remarkable reality something that we need to remind ourselves of. Uh, even as we, again, in our worship time this morning, we <clears throat> remind ourselves of these truths for the purpose of living um, in a way that pleases God. Well, what we also see here in, in chapter one, uh, incredible security that 
is a part of our identity in Christ. And let me just read for you in the opening verses here. Um, I'll start with verse 6. In this you rejoice. And he's talking about the salvation and the fact that we're born again to a living hope. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Um, here we see that God is at work and has secured for us an eternal salvation. In fact, I, I'm sorry, I should have started reading in verse 4 where he talks about an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In fact, it's kept in heaven by the power of God who is guarding us through faith for salvation. As I think about the people in our culture who are struggling to understand who they are and who they, why they're here, what a glorious message. We are secure as the children of God. We have an inheritance that cannot be corrupted or defiled, and it's guarded by God himself. What a message to proclaim to a hurting country, a hurting people. Well, the results we just read about of this true faith um, is the inestimable value that God gives for what that means, and it's proven through our life. He speaks of uh, things like the love that we experience and joy that is inexpressible. What a powerful concept. Have you ever been filled with joy that you just couldn't get the words out to talk about? That's the fruit, that's the consequence of our identity in Christ. If we, if we gird up the loins of our mind and rehearse this, if we recognize uh, this as well. Well, what is also remarkable about our identity is that it is shown by Peter to be a transformative journey to Jesus together. And what we see here is that in the very first verse, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son working together to accomplish this incredible work in and through our lives. And yet what it's meant for is a transformation of our life. No longer living according to my former passions, as we read this morning um, in verse 13 and 14, but rather beginning to reflect the character of God. Later in chapter 2, we read it's, for those of us, we proclaim the excellencies of God because we've been moved from darkness into his marvelous light. We now can see in a way we never saw before. The world as it really is, not as some groups may want to paint it to be. But as, again, as we think about coming to Jesus, I think Peter here, is, and I'm going to read in chapter 2, verse 4, the simple phrase. Here, Peter says, As you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to a holy priesthood. And he goes on to use several other metaphors to talk about who we become together. But it's fascinating to me that coming to Jesus isn't simply a past event. And sometimes when we talk about coming to Jesus, we talk about that point in my past in which I yielded my heart and I became a follower of Jesus. 
For Peter, this is an ongoing, daily trajectory of life. And I guess the question that rings out to us is, are you coming to Jesus? Not have you come, but are you coming? And I, I think back about Peter's interaction. In, we read about it in John, right? You remember how that they're fishing all night. Jesus has said, go to Galilee. And, and all of a sudden, there's this voice from the shore that says, have you caught anything? No. Cast your net on the other side. They do. They catch all this fish. And John recognizes the miracle because it happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he says, it's the Lord. Peter jumps out. Remember the story? Twice in that passage, Jesus turns to Peter and says the same words that started everything for Peter. Follow me. Well, Peter was already following Jesus, right? There was a call, a trajectory of life. And in the first call, Jesus said to Peter, I'll make you a fisher of men. In that second call, he said, I want you to be a, a shepherd. I want you to feed my sheep. And we recognize that our lives aren't static and our relationship with Jesus shouldn't be static either. And that coming to Jesus ought to be something that reflects life, not simply an historic event. And we do it together. And one of the remarkable things about Peter is this is painted for all of us together, not just me individually, not just you individually. I'd like to share a little story with you of one of our partners. Um, one of our partners in Brazil uh, moved to extending training online. Um, Sao Paulo, Brazil is a huge city. We heard about Mexico City this morning. These mammoth cities that exist worldwide. And if you can imagine trying to get across the city of Sao Paulo to, to go to the Bible college or seminary and having to be in traffic for two to six hours to get there and working a full-time job. Well, there was a, a doctor who wanted Bible training. And when the program was offered, he enrolled. And so we didn't know him from afar. We, lived, we were in Grand Rapids. And here this man entered the program and he took his first course. It was on the life of Jesus in the Gospels. He completed the course and then he was signed up for another course and he dropped out. Now as an educator, you look at that and you think, oh, that's a pity. Um, he hasn't continued on. This is, uh, you know, I wish he had. And were it not for, again, the providence of God, we would have never known what happened to this physician in his life. The reason he dropped out was he said, hey, I've just learned all this incredible truth about Jesus. How in the world can I go into another class without applying it in my life? So he's, he's like, I've got to think about this. I've got to integrate it into how I think and how I live. And so he thought, well, the best way for me to do that is to teach what I've been learning. So he had a, a group of physicians that he was um, a colleague with. They were Brazilians living in Japan. And they would meet regularly to Skype. And he invited them. He said, if you want, I'm going to be having a Bible study we're going to look at, the life of Jesus. And he basically taught the course to these Brazilian doctors in Japan. Led several to Christ. Discipled one, several of them. Using tech, um, video conferencing technology. Finally, one of the men wanted to meet the man who led him to Christ. So he got on a plane. He flew to Brazil. They talked together. They said, you know, we need to go to the seminary and just tell them how God's been at work. So they drove across Sao Paulo to the seminary, and it just so happened that our president was at the campus that day. And so they went and talked to him and shared with him the story of how God had used this course. Now, my question as an educator was, was that a failure? 
No, by no stretch. Who could have imagined the work, what God would do um, simply by this faithful doctor who wanted to take what he knew and to proclaim it to those he worked with? He wasn't a professional minister of the gospel, yet God used him in a profound way. So as we think about the value here, we recognize that even as Christ's blood in the passage we read this morning is said to be of inestimable value, not able to be compared to things that are perishable like silver and gold, God says the same is true of your faith and my faith. In fact, the language is very similar. And it's remarkable that this very incredible surpassing value of Christ in essence rubs off on you and me as we live out a faith that proves, as Peter says, the genuineness of my walk with Christ, and which God gives that value to. That's remarkable. But it begins by understanding who we are in Christ, who God has made us to be, where we're heading, and living our lives in a way that is congruent with that path. So here he says, hope to the utter end. And... Um, as I hear that phrase, um, my mind goes to that noble and valiant mouse. And I, I'm sorry, I don't mean Mickey. I mean Reap a Cheap for those of you who are C.S. Lewis fans. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a, a character called Reap a Cheap. He's a valiant little mouse. And in the, one of the, my favorite books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he talks about his total vision and passion for life is to get to the utter east. So as I think about hoping to the utter end in Christ, I think of that mouse. And I just want to read you a little quote from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. When the crew on the ship he's sailing toward the utter east with is thinking about turning around. And this is Reba Cheap's response. My own plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the Dawn Treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. Hard to get choked up over a mouse, right? And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world into some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. And it chokes me up because I think, what does it mean to have that kind of commitment? A single orientation, trajectory, a mindset, that understands my identity in Christ. Well, there's a second thing that Peter highlights for us, and it's a remarkable statement again. And I'll invite you to look in chapter 2, and specifically verse 16. The context here is he is starting his main part of his letter a few verses earlier, and he's calling the people of God in fact, these are churches that are scattered across what was then called Asia Minor. It's modern-day Turkey. So as you look at a map and you think about that part of the world, here were churches scattered all across this vast area. And in talking to them, he is going to call them to submit themselves, to be subject to the authorities in their life. Now, if you've done any study of history, and you think about people like Claudius or Nero, and what, what Peter is actually calling them to, a corrupt and unjust authority, really? Submit myself to that? 
It's in that context that we read these words, verse 16. Peter says to, to these churches, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. In essence, Peter is calling the people of God to live as free people. Now, in our culture, freedom has a lot of things, right? It means a lot of things to a lot of people. Most often, if you talk to somebody about what does it mean to be free, you'll hear a response that talks about being freed from some constraints, right? I want to be able to do this in my life. I want to be able to do that in my life. And so it's about freedom from. The Bible's perspective here and what we'll see is much more fulsome. It's not only freedom from, it's freedom to or for something. And so here, Peter calls or describes this freedom as something that is not used to do something God doesn't like or intend, which is, it's not for a cover for sin, but in essence what it means is to become a servant or a bond slave of God. That's quite a unique idea. I'm free to be a slave. And so it's really Peter's way of saying, yes, God has called us to be free, but it's freedom in the right direction. As I listened and participated with all of you this morning and heard the various people on the instruments, um, I could ask you the question, would I be free to play the drums like Josh? Well, the truth is no. I could try, but I do not have that freedom. I just said, I've not put the time in. And I, even if I did, I couldn't play like Josh. But the point is, true freedom comes with discipline, doesn't it? A freedom, too, requires me to put myself under a certain yoke, certain practice and responsibility and time. That's what frees me to have a capacity to do something. And the same is true for us in our faith. God has freed us from sin, and we need to live with that perspective. But he's also freed us to be his servant, to join with him in his mission. And so that's the second thing we see here, is that we must live as free people, and especially within the tensions of life. I'm just going to highlight two major tensions. The first comes, and I think it's very applicable to our culture today. Like I said, Peter goes on through his letter to talk about these various authorities in our life and how we need to be subject to them. He starts with government. Then he moves to masters. And if we can imagine, the first group he talks to is slaves. I mean, not slaves of Christ, but slaves in the culture. And that's remarkable, right? What do you mean I need to respond in a way to someone who's being unjust to me or unkind to me. He talks to husbands and wives. And in that day and age, wives did not have the same level of authority or privilege or power as men. And he's talking to them in that dynamic. He's talking to the church, to elders in, in the body. And in all of these cases, Peter is calling for a willingness to be subject, to submit. And the question that seems to percolate in me is why? Why would we need to live this way? Well, we see several examples here of why God has called us to live this way. The first is that Jesus himself 
is our example, and we are called to follow in his footsteps. It's right in chapter 2. Talking to servants and talking to these bond servants who have these masters, he says, listen, when you suffer for doing the right thing, this is God's grace. He actually equates that with the grace of God. And he says to them, this is what you've been called to, verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So the first reason we're given for why do we submit ourselves to authorities who are unjust or corrupt or immoral is because Jesus himself did and we are called to live our life as he did. We're also told several points in this letter that that suffering that we experience when we are in those kinds of situations is really short-lived. It's fleeting compared to the eternal glory that will be revealed. And we hear Paul echoed in that, right, as, as well. That this short period of suffering cannot begin to compare to what God has in store for us. In fact, that's a, a place in our own life. When, as, as a family, as we think about our medical challenges, we are reminded of that reality. That God is using this suffering in our lives for particular reasons, that, some of which we don't know. But it's short-lived, and the glory that will be revealed cannot even begin to compare to the short span of suffering that we experience in the trials in our life. Third, uh, we read in Peter that living in this way changes us. It humbles us. Not, that's not a slogan that we often want to run around saying, this is my goal in life, to be humbled. What, is it, what does it really mean for me to see God pull my pride and my selfish ambition out of me and transform me, transform my life? God uses our trials to produce what he views as this precious, incredible quality in our lives, and that's a quality of humility. And, and uh, Peter highlights it several places uh, in his letter as well. It's through our willingness to submit to these pressures that we discover the grace and goodness of God in suffering. We mentioned that. And then I'll just highlight one final thing, and this is at the end of chapter 3. Here, after talking about these places of authority that we must submit ourselves to, he begins to talk about Jesus, and at the end of chapter 3, talks about the reality that Jesus Christ has gone into heaven, verse 22. He is at the right hand of God, this place of privilege and honor, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So why do I subject myself to these authorities in my life? Because all authority in heaven and in earth has been subjected to Jesus Christ. And I can entrust my life to God in the same way that Jesus, we read in Peter, entrusted himself to the Father and was obedient. And that's the message. That's the practical message in, in this reality. Um, let me give another illustration. We work uh, with um, a group that seminary that I mentioned that took the other seminary in, in Ukraine, and they're working together. One of the first classes that we offered was an elements of Bible study class. And um, we were working with the partner, we were helping them prepare, it was all in Russian. Um, and it was just prior to this time that you may recall that there was an incursion into Ukraine where Russian separatists and Russian military came in and took over Crimea. Have you you familiar with that event as it happened. Well, 
Imagine the church, people of God living in that part of Ukraine. Many of them lost their homes. In fact, one of the schools, one of the seminaries there was, had one of the best libraries in all of Central Europe in terms of a seminary and what they had available. The separatists came in and took over the campus. It became their launching place. They lost everything. They lost their dorms. They lost their campus, their computers, all their records, their library. One of the pastors who was involved there had to flee. They destroyed the church that he was shepherding. And he became a refugee moving to Kiev with nothing. He and his family, no home, no money, no ministry. God, in his providence, as we were praying and looking for the right teacher to teach elements of Bible study, we discovered this man who had time on his hands and had a heart for the ministry, who became the first teacher. And as they launched that program, they had students Russian-speaking students, not only in Ukraine, but in Israel, in South Korea, in Germany. And here you have this cross-cultural ministry happening, being led by a refugee pastor who had lost everything. Helps to put into perspective, I think, for us, as we think about the tensions that we live within and what it means to subject ourselves to things and to serve even in the midst of those in ways that would bring honor to God. And God used that in a powerful way. The other part of the tension here is that Peter, while telling us to be subject, is also commanding that we not yield. And the two things that he highlights are our sinful way of living, that we shouldn't yield to our former way of life, but also to the culture that presses us. In fact, in chapter 4, the image he gives is of, of a flood that sweeps away everything in its path. And he talks about this flood of debauchery. And the culture looks at us when we say, no, I won't participate. And I won't participate in this flood of debauchery. And they malign you and me as the people of God. We receive criticism for not participating. And so here we're living in this tension. I need to be subject to authority, and yet I need to not yield to sin, personal sin, and the sin that my culture says, this is acceptable, you need to do this with us. And so I, I, I wrestle with in that tension. In fact, Peter uses the imagery of exiles and aliens, and he says, this is how you need to perceive yourself. So let me ask a question. How many of you have lived in western Michigan for more than 10 years? How about more than 15, 20? So it's going to be really hard for any of us here to really think about what does it mean to be a foreigner, right? What does it mean to be an exile? Um, what does it mean to be a resident alien? But that's the imagery that Peter uses for us and how we are to perceive ourselves within this tension. Am I willing to suffer? Am I willing to entrust my soul to my creator and do the right thing? The second tension that Peter talks about is a tension of competing visions. And if, if you look, I'll just mention it quickly. In chapter 3, he actually quotes from Psalm 34. Um, if you look at verse 10, here's the quotation. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, and he goes on to describe what that life should look like. The question is, what is the good life? 
How would you answer that question? How would you describe the good life? Our culture talks about it usually in terms of the American dream, right? This is the good life. This is why people want to come to this country, is to experience these things. Peter, on the other hand, quoting from David, says, no, the good life is somewhat different. Uh, the good life is, number one, verse eight, a vision for demonstrating a holy love as the people of God. This goes back actually into chapter one, when what we read this morning, loving in, in a way that reflects holy living. And we've been designed to demonstrate that love in Christ with one another. So in verse eight, here in this beautiful picture, he frames it. Uh, he talks about our way of thinking on both sides. He talks about this compassion and, that we have toward one another. And located in the center is this idea of brotherly love. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. He ends with humble mind. In the, in the inside, being sympathetic, being compassionate toward one another. And in the very center of this idea of having brotherly love in, in chapter 3, verse 8. And we need to be people of love. We need to be people who recognize that the good life means extending compassion. This morning, uh, we were, as we looked at life matters, uh, in fact, a verse that was used was love covering multitude of sins in 4.8. And I, I, I completely agree with that idea. It's not covering up sin, but it's being willing as a body to bring someone to redemption in the midst of sin. In fact, here, in verse 9, it's, I'm not going to strike back with the sin that you give to me. I'm not going to return evil for evil, reviling for reviling. I'm going to break cycles of sin by, as the people of God, loving one another in the midst of our sin. And that's what it means to cover a multitude of sins, to, to be that kind of a body that extends loving kindness to one another. And in fact, here we read that when we do that, it's because we are called. We are called to bless. And so in the psalm that he quotes, here's a couple of quick ideas. We need to live right, a just life. We need to do good. We need to be willing to do good in the public sphere. We need to seek the welfare of others, he says, seeking peace and pursue it. When we do those things, it actually enables us to do what Peter says next, to pray well. Live right, do good, and you'll pray well. In fact, three times in the letter, Peter says, if you don't live an ethical life, your prayers can be hindered. That's a powerful reminder. The good life, what does it mean? Well, it means catching God's vision for life and living that vision out in my daily experience. Well, finally, let me just give one final thought, and that's the way Peter concludes his, his whole letter here. Chapter 5 and verse 12, he talks about Silvanus in verse 12. I've written briefly to you, and here he summarizes what his message has been through this, these five chapters. I've been exhorting and declaring to you that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. You want a summary of 1 Peter? That's Peter's summary of that letter. Everything I've told you about is about the grace of God. You need to choose to stand firm in it. Unfortunately, in life, there are a lot of things that distract us from standing firm in it, and we see that in his letter as well. 
There's a desire to belong. Peter talks about that desire and says, listen, you need to have a way of thinking about yourself as not belonging to this place, but belonging to another place. It's easy to get caught up in my former way of life and in old habits. It's easy to respond inappropriately when I experience injustice. I can either retreat in fear or I can strike back in revenge. And Peter says that's not the answer. The answer is in the middle ground. It's being willing to be subject and yet not yield. And my own pride that gets in the way. Let me close with, with this story which I think illustrates for me um, what it means to stand firm in the grace of God, to not be distracted by things that cause me to lose sight of what it means to remain in God's grace. Um, a number of years ago, there was a, an opportunity for a number of churches to partner in West Michigan. I don't know if any of you participated, but it was called uh, Ballet Magnificat. Any of you remember that? Um, it was in Grand Rapids, uh, the church that we were a part of, participated. So Rinda and I were a part of the choir. There was a, an orchestra. There was a choir of a group of churches. And there was a ballet troupe that actually uh, portrayed the gospel story. And it was an invitation to people who didn't know Christ to come and to see the story of the Bible unfold on the stage while we sang and there was music and everything else. So our daughter, Devra, some of you know her. She's been here. She uh, was just totally enthralled by ballet. She had a little ballet tape that she would watch and she had her own little outfit and as this little girl she would twirl and do all these kinds of things in our living room. So we thought she would love this, but we, unfortunately my daughter's a little bit like me and that is, you know, how you, you can fall out of your seat while eating and everything else. She was very active. That was me. And so we thought, well, how are we going to do this? Because both of us are up in the choir. So we packed this backpack full of toys and items. And we sat her down with somebody we knew. And we said, okay, you know, you've got everything you need in here, coloring books, uh, dolls, things, you know. And it was like a two-hour deal. And, you know, we just knew there's no way she's going to sit for two hours. So after the concert after the presentation. Uh, we did some cleanup and I drove home and I went into my daughter's bedroom and uh, I came and I said, so Devra, what'd you think? And her little brow furrowed and I thought, oh no, what happened? <laughs> you know? And she said, oh dad, I was so distracted. I couldn't do anything in my bag. <laughs> and I, it took me aback. I actually laughed out loud at that. I thought, wow, so distracted by the main event that she couldn't do any of her little trinkets. Well, we had a second performance. And as I was driving home after that second performance, that thought came into my mind. And I was kind of chuckling behind the wheel late at night driving home. And I'll confess to you, I've never heard the voice of God audibly. This was the closest I ever heard. It was as if God was speaking to, directly to my heart saying, Rahab, I wish you were more like your daughter. I wish you were so distracted by the main thing that you can't do anything else. That's the vision of Peter. Are we willing to stand firm 
in the grace of God that he gives. When we, in our culture, thinks of grace, and our culture thinks of permissiveness. But God's grace is not permissive. It is actually what establishes the capacity to obey the command. God gives us his commands, and grace doesn't say, oh, it's okay. Grace gives us the capacity to actually fulfill those commands, to live in the midst of those tensions, to be faithful and understand my identity in Christ in such a way that nothing else shadows who I am and why I'm here. Lord, let me close in prayer. Lord, may we be people who, like we have thought about this day, that Peter has exhorted us to be, people who understand what it means to be a child of yours, invited into your family through Christ, people who are willing to live out that faith in the tensions of life. As you humble us, as you make us into your treasured possession, as Peter says. How remarkable. Lord, work in our hearts to have that desire, to be people who want to focus only on the main thing. Give us your grace to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.